0: Well, good morning. Try that one more time. Good morning. How many of you remember seeing me here last time? And you came back? You thought I wasn't going to be here. That's why you came back, right? I think, I think Victor decided you did so bad last time, brother, we're going to give you one more shot at it. So that's why I'm here today. So it's good to be with you, Paramount. Good to be back in Amarillo where I spent my 45th anniversary and uh, just a couple of weeks ago, so it is um, the place to be in Texas, right? Amen? Come on. Aren't you glad about your town and glad to be here. All right, If you have your Bible, take your Bible and turn with me if you would, to John chapter five, verse 16 through verse 20, John 5:16 through verse 20. Before we start, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like in your life that God was missing? God was missing. Because of the times that we live in, I think sometimes we wonder, God, where are you? Maybe you're going through a tragic time, a difficult time, or a hard time in your life, and you wonder, God, where are you? I want release, relief from my present circumstance and situation, and, and I have been asking and been praying and been waiting, and it's almost as if God is not listening, or maybe God is absent. Well, the fact of the matter is that God is never absent from his throne. He is not an absentee landlord He did not abdicate his throne. He is constantly and continually sitting on his throne, reigning and ruling, dictating and determining every activity, every aspect, orchestrating everything in the world today. He doesn't take a vacation. He doesn't go on sabbatical. He doesn't take a time of leave. He doesn't on a Sunday morning decide that he's going to sleep in and not go to church. Amen? Amen. And so God is present with us. He is here, and as a result of that, It's important for us to see the reality of the presence of God in every aspect of our life. Christ actually lived his life that way while he was on the earth. Christ was keenly aware of the presence of God and the activity of God and that is in essence the reason why he was able to do the things that he did. And I want us to take a look at John chapter 5 verse 16 through verse 20 this morning and see exactly how Christ lived his life. It's here that we are going to learn that he was available to the activity of God. He was not only attentive to that activity, but he was abandoned to that activity, and he was also assured that God was not only working, but that God was going to do greater things than they had yet to see. And as a result of those greater things, God was going going to cause them to marvel. And Jesus sets for us an example, because that's what really Anthony talked about last week, When he was here about discipleship, discipleship basically means that we are to follow in the footsteps the examples of Christ. And so today we're going to see these four footprints that Christ leaves for us in which he manifested this idea that he was keenly attentive, he was available, he was abandoned, and he was assured that God was on his throne and that God was actively operating and working in every aspect of not only his life but every life that he came in contact with and every circumstance that surrounded him. So let's stand in honor of God's inerrant, holy, and infallible word today. Let me read for us John chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. We're going to read through verse 20 in the ESV. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working." So that you may marvel. Father, thank you for the joy, the privilege, and the opportunity we've had today to sing praises from our heart, from our lips, from our minds as we have engaged your presence in this place this morning. You are not asleep. You are on your throne presently. You have not abdicated that throne. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are reigning, you are ruling, and no one, not even us, can thwart the purposes for which you have for us. And what you want to do in us and through us. So Lord as we acknowledge your presence this morning. As we open your word. Open our hearts. Open our minds. Help us not only hear what the spirit would have us hear through your word. But help the spirit apply it to our individual lives. Into the corporate life of your church. So that we might experience and enjoy the fullness of your work. Your activity in our lives and through our lives. In this city and around the world we ask in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. It's important, I think, for us to sort of set the context of what is happening in John chapter 5, beginning with the verse that we read this morning. So I want to sort of just give you a synopsis of what has happened so far in John chapter 5, according to the writing of John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what has happened on this occasion and what's brought us to this conversation between Christ and these religious elites. In John chapter 5, verse 1, we learn that there is a festival going on in Jerusalem, in Israel Christ and his disciples are making their way into Jerusalem to participate in the festivities he happens to choose the sheep gate to enter into the city of Jerusalem that's not an accident because we know Christ is who he is the lamb of God and as the lamb of God he enters into the sheep gate into Jerusalem I don't need to apply that for you any further than that do I and so he enters into the sheep gate, but that sheep gate, in the entrance as he goes into the city and makes his way to the temple, that entrance causes him to have to pass the Pool of Bethesda. Now the Pool of Bethesda is a, a, a marvelous piece of architecture, it is made of five Covered colonnades It's a beautiful pool. It is designed for rest and relaxation and people to enjoy the pool. But the problem is, you see, there is a superstition in Jerusalem that believes that when God stirs the water, the first one in the water will receive their miracle. And as a result of that superstition, many have believed in it. And so John instructs us and informs us that there have been a multitude of people who have gathered at this pool, awaiting for the moment of their miracle, a multitude. I don't know how many that is, but that's a lot. And there's a lot of people who believe in this superstition. And if you can sort of get a picture of that, these these hundreds, maybe, people just Sitting there, fixated on the pool, so that when God stirs the water, they might be the first to enter into the pool and receive their healing. They're attentive, they're waiting, they're watching. Many have been there a long time. And as Christ passed the pool of Bethesda on the way to the temple, John informs us through inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus notices one man at the pool of Bethesda of the multitude that is there. He saw this one man. Think about it. You ever been there? You've been the multitude that maybe you thought God didn't see you? But this is really not the first time that God has seen this man. He's had his eye on him all along. He's known how long he's been there. This man has been in this infirmity for 38 years. And Christ is passing by the pool of Bethesda, and he sees this man. And John informs us that he knows that this man has been there for 38 possible years at least he's been in that condition for that long for John says us that he tells us that he's been there a long time i don't know how you define a long time but that's a long time And so he was there a long time. And if you can imagine being there a long time, he has a lot of stuff, a lot of paraphernalia that he has accumulated over the time that he's been there to sustain life through the winters and through the summers and all of those things, through the meals. And so he's been there a long time. And Christ sees him, knows he's been there a long time, and then Christ speaks to the man. He speaks to him. And he says to this one man, out of the multitude who are there, Sir, would you like to be healed? That sounds like an odd question, doesn't it, to a man who's been waiting for the finger of God to stir the water so that he can get healed? Of course he wants to be healed. Why would Christ ask such a question? I think it's because there are a lot of people that like their dysfunction, like their ailments. Do you know anybody that you ask them how they're doing and they give you a long list of things that are wrong with them physically? And if they didn't have anything wrong with them physically, they wouldn't have anything to talk about? Anybody know anybody like that? If you don't know anybody like that, you are that person. All right? Yes, because you're always telling everybody about your ailments. Of course he wants to be healed. And so the man admits to Christ. He says, sir, I would love to be healed. But the problem is, you see, when God stirs the water, I don't have anybody to help me to get there, and other people beat me to the water first. It's almost as if the man is admitting He needs someone to help save him, to help him be redeemed, to help him to be whole and to be healed. And then Christ, with a compassionate voice, but with authority, says to the man, Rise, put up your bed, and walk. And he says it with such authority that the man rises to his feet, a man who has not been able to walk for 38 years, and on the command, on the authority of Christ, he rises to his feet, he rolls up his bed, he puts it on his shoulder, and off he goes. It's a miracle. What happened was the people began to see what was there, and the miracle that took place, and a crowd more than likely began to gather, and Christ scoots off the scene without telling the man who he was and what he had done for him. Well, the man is on his way to the temple because it's the Sabbath, more than likely to worship, to magnify and glorify God for his healing. And maybe on his way to the temple, or maybe as he walked into the temple courtyard, the greeter who was there, much like the greeters we have here, tapped him on the shoulder and said, Hey, buddy, that's unlawful for you to carry your bed on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Okay? The man looks at the guy and says, I don't know what you're talking about. All I know is the last 38 years I was an invalid, I was at the Pool of Bethesda. This man came by, told me to pick up my bed and to walk and to rise and go, and here I am. And this religious zealot then asked the man, who is he? What is his name? Honestly, the man has to admit he doesn't know the name of the man who said that. He says, I don't know. Later, John informs us that Christ seeks the man out in the temple, in the courtyard, introduces himself. I wish we had all the conversation, but we don't. More than likely, Christ introduces himself, shakes his hand, saying, I'm Jesus. I'm the one that healed you. And the man becomes, a, I believe, a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus, puts his faith and trust in Christ. By the statement that Christ makes to him that we have recorded for us in John chapter 5, Jesus said, you are well, go and sin no more, or something worse than this will happen to you. So he was giving him forgiveness of sin. So therefore, I think possibly this man had placed his faith and trust as his Savior and was forgiven of his sin. And uh, the man is so excited that he finally realizes who it was and knows the name of the man who healed him and his newfound faith in Christ. He seeks out those guys that had asked him that previous question, thinking, I believe, maybe they too want to be a Christ follower. And he goes and tells them with incredible excitement. How do you think that? Because of what he says to them. If you look at John 5, what he says to them, he says to them, when he finds out who it is, he goes to these guys and he says, listen to what he says. He didn't say, the man that told me to carry my bed on the Sabbath, his name is Jesus. That's not what he said. He said to them, the man that healed me, his name is Christ. He wasn't a stool pigeon. He was simply saying, he's the one who healed me. Now here's where we start in our conversation in chapter 5 verse 16 where we learn how Christ simply steps into the activity of God and joins God in what God is doing. And in these four footprints we learn that the first footprint that he leaves for us, that he tells us that we should emulate and should follow is like Christ we must be attentive to the activity of the Father. We must be attentive. and attentive to the activity of the Father. Look at the text in verse 16. Notice the approach. Now, I want you to think about that. John doesn't give us all the detail here. I'm not sure there would be enough space for him to tell us everything that took place. But I can imagine, as as you probably can, after that conversation with the man, having known who it was, who was Christ, they are seeking him out. And so they are approaching Christ. Now, as they approach Christ, they don't say a word. They don't ask a question, at least not one that we have recorded here. The reality is it's not necessary because Christ knows what they're thinking and feeling anyway before they're even saying a word. And so as they approach Christ, notice verse 16, this was why the Jews were persecuting Christ, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Notice these Jews approached him. Who were they? They are Judeans. They are legalists. They are lawyers. They are experts in the Mosaic law, and they are seeking to... Hold Christ to their traditions. These are the people that are approaching Christ. For what purpose are they approaching Christ? Not to become Christ's followers. They're not even interested or curious about the man who is being healed. Simply they are wanting to persecute Christ. This word persecuting Christ is a word that talks about a continual persecution. This is not the first time. It won't be the last time. They are continually, constantly persecuting Christ, and they are approaching Christ because they are seeking to persecute him as they have in the past and as they will continue to do. So they are persecuting Jesus. Why? What's the problem? Notice he's doing these things on the Sabbath. What things? things like the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. He's doing these things. And they believe that Christ should not be doing these things on the Sabbath. So this is somewhat of a tribunal. This is uh, uh, a couple of lawyers that are taking Christ to court. Uh, There's uh, an aspect of putting him on trial. And so they approach him with this accusation of doing things on the Sabbath. It's beautiful that Christ takes the time to answer their accusations. I don't know about you, but I would really love for the Lord to answer all of my questions, wouldn't you? How many of you have questions that you would like to ask him as soon as you get to heaven? Anybody here other than me? Come on, every hand should be raised. We all have questions. And these people have questions. And they want to make sure that Christ is going to answer the question that they have, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? And so Christ gives them the reason and the answer The rationale as to why he does these things on the Sabbath. Notice what he says. But Jesus answered them, points to his relationship with the Father, where he says, my Father, my Father is working, and I too am working, and I am working. Notice he points them as he's answering their question to his personal relationship between him and his Father. My, the personal pronoun, Father, Abba, God, Daddy, whatever you want to call him, my Father. He is talking about a personal relationship between him and the Father. You know, I think one of the main reasons why Christ was so attentive to the activity of God is because he had an intimate love relationship with God the Father. And it was that closeness, that intimacy, that relationship that he had, that he was aware of all of the activity of God everywhere he went and every encounter that he had in any circumstance that developed. He was aware of the activity because he and God were connected. They were intimate. They were close. He had this insight because of this intimacy with God. Notice my father is working. This is a continual work. It is a constant work. It is an activity that is purposeful and intentional. For God never does anything without intentionality. Let me say that again. God never does anything without intentionality. God is not an oops God. I didn't see that coming. I didn't mean for that to happen. I didn't want to do that. He's intentional in everything that he does. And this God who is intentional is purposeful, going around, actively working in everybody's life, in everybody's circumstance all the time. He is constantly, continually at work. He's at work in your life and my life and your life and your life and our life and everybody's life here in this room, in this auditorium. He is actively working in every relationship that you have, every family member, every spouse, every child, everyone at your office, everywhere where you recreate, everyone in this city and everywhere around the world. He is actively working. He's working. And Christ was attentive to that activity. But notice he says, My father is working. Until now. What's up with that? Christ recognizes that these guys who have come to persecute him, they're there to persecute him. They're not there to put their faith in him. They want to harm him and hurt him. That even in your desire to hurt and harm me, God is working in that. Yeah, you know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to believe that God only works in the good things. Right? The blessed times, the wonderful times, the exuberant times. The birth of a grandchild or the wedding of our daughter or son or, you know, whatever it is. The reality is Christ is working even in the hard times, even in the difficulties, even in the persecutions. Christ knows that the Father is at work at this very moment and instant. God has not stopped working even though they've come to persecute him, eventually try him, kill him on a cross. He knows that that's part of the activity of God. You see, I think that sometimes you and I are simply not attentive to the activity of the Father. We're not. Are we? Not always. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll around like this. You know what I'm saying? I call that tunnel vision. And if God operates out here where I can't see him, I'm not not aware of that activity because I'm walking around like this and I expect him, I anticipate him to work this way and I'm not attentive to the activity of God. Maybe I'm not attentive to the activity of God because I'm walking around like this, (laughs) blinded to God's activity because I'm not seeing it. Why would a born-again believer in Jesus Christ not be aware and attentive to the activity of God? It's probably because of a lack of a close, personal, intimate love relationship with the Father. I have learned in my own life, and maybe you've learned in yours, that when I distance myself from the Father and our relationship isn't quite what it needs to be, I have a tendency to be blinded or narrow-minded to the activity of God. And I'm not always quite aware, if I'm not careful, that God is at working in every conversation, every encounter, every circumstance, every situation. God is at work. And I need to be aware of that. Because that awareness brings us to the second footprint, awareness brings availability. Christ was not only aware or attentive to the activity of God, but he was also available to God's activity. And sometimes we're not available to what God is doing, are we? Even though we may recognize what he's doing, we're not really open to what he's doing. Notice the text in verse 17, the last part of verse 17. Keep that up if you would, JT. Notice, my father is working... Until now, look what he says, and I am working, and I am working. That word and is a conjunction. Jesus is linking what he said before to what he's about to say. There's no separation between the two. You can't separate the fact that God is working and I am working. They're linked together. And this conjunction, he's saying to them, because God is working, I am working, now, the word I am where Christ identifies himself as the I am, have we heard that before anywhere in the Bible? I am the I am. Don't you think that these religious zealous who were very familiar with the Old Testament and what God often called himself knew that Christ was calling himself the great I am? He says, "My Father is working and I am the I am who is working with the Father." I am the I am. And did you know the word working is the same work that is described for the activity of God? These words are the same words. And what he is saying to them is that God's work and my work are the same. I wish I I could say that about me all the time. How about you? I honestly have to admit that not always my work and his work are the same. How about you? I am working This infuriates them. It pushes their escalation from persecution now to annihilation. Look what John says in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? Come on, church, what? To kill him. They no longer wanted to persecute him. They are stepping up the notch. They are wanting to exterminate him, to eliminate him, to kill him. Why? That was their objective They had three objections. If you notice the objections, first of all, it says, because, here are their objections. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, they believed he was committing sin. They had had a tribunal, and they were judge, juries, and executioners, and they were going to execute Christ because he was committing sin. Christ was sinless. He was perfect. How can the one who gave the law violate his own law? He was sinless. He wasn't committing a sin. He was breaking their tradition, but he was not violating the word of God. They were saying he was committing sin, notice. But he was even calling God his own father. He was claiming to be divine. I mean, we just celebrated the divinity of Christ at Christmas, did we not? Christ was born of a virgin. I talked about that a month ago through Mary. She said, how can I be with child when I'm a virgin? And we talked about the supernatural fetal infertilization of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit came upon her and God overshadowed her. And that which was conceived in her was none other than fully God and fully man. He was divine. He had no earthly father. And so he was, in fact, who he claimed to be. He was divine. He was the son of God. But notice their third accusation, making himself equal with God. He considered himself to be as the same as God. As the same, made up of the same stuff. He was in attitude, nature, and character just like God. I was thinking about that this morning while I was looking over the the notes this morning and uh, my son Matthew, some of you guys know him, uh, here in the church. Uh, He's our older son. He's our pastor now. Uh, So be careful, guys. Your son may become your elder one of these days. And... uh, It's funny, uh, if you watch he and my younger son, I have two sons, walk from behind, they walk just like their father. That's not a good thing. (laughs) It's not a good thing, okay? It's not. They should have learned not how to walk (laughs) and walk differently. Why do they do that? Because they walk like their father. Jesus here made himself not only equal with God, but as the same as God. And what Christ is saying here in this text, as we saw in 7b, I'm available to what God is doing. These Pharisees, these Sadducees, these self-righteous religious elites were not open, were not available to what God was doing. They missed a miracle completely of a man who had been diseased for 38 years was sitting by a pool to Bethesda waiting for the moment of his miracle and when Christ appeared and showed up he healed the man all they were concerned about was the breaking of the Sabbath they didn't care about the man sounds like some in church that I know today and so we have it here that they're not available to what the father is doing you see the way Christ operated is he walked around in life and he and the Father were intimately connected and entwined, had a close personal relationship, and he was walking around through the streets of Jerusalem and the highways and the byways of Israel and and all the places that he went, and, and he was watching for God working, and he knew that God was at work everywhere, every encounter, every activity, every miracle, everything that he did. God's at work here, and he's waiting to step into the activity that God is doing, and in doing so, he's joining what God is doing, not what he wanted to do. Are you available to whatever it is God wants to bring into your life at any time, any place? Are you like the Pharisees who are so rigid in your understanding? Because if you think about it, why did they reject Christ? Because he didn't fit their mold. They had an understanding. They had a concept. They had a belief that Christ was going to come and liberate them from Rome. But there was, there was a, an enslavement far greater than their enslavement to Rome. It was their enslavement to sin. And Christ came to free them from the slavery of sin and to give them hope and eternal life through faith in him. And they rejected Christ because he didn't fit into their mold. They were not available to Christ. They weren't available to hear him speak. They were not available to what he could bring into their lives simply because I'm not interested. I'm not available. You don't fit what I think. You should fit and so we need to be very careful we're going to follow in the footsteps of Christ to not only be attentive and aware of when God is at work but to be available good hard tough easy blessing not so blessed Lord I'm available to whatever it is you want to do in me and through me and around those around me thirdly we see that he was abandoned to the activity of God He was abandoned to the activity of God. Notice the text in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Again, John does not give us all the insight in the conversation. We don't even see that they even made any kind of rebuttal to the claim of Christ. But Christ then steps onto the scene and then goes even a little bit deeper to help them and help us today understand how he operates in joining God in what God is doing. How did Christ do that? How does he do that? Because if we as his disciples are to step into his activity, I want to know how he did it so that as I follow in his footprints, I can join God in the same way. And so he tells them and he tells us by first saying, truly, truly, I say to you, I say to you, truly, truly, amen, amen. 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 So be it. It It's truth. What what Jesus is telling these, these, these unbelievers is that what he is saying is the truth. Whether they receive it or not, it is true. Truth doesn't always have to be received in order to be true. And this is his truth. This is what he's saying to them as his right he is emphatic. He is authoritative. He is commanding. He is saying, truly, truly, I, Jesus, the Son of God, say to you and to us. Notice what he says. The Son can do anything on his own accord. Is that what it says? I got the wrong translation. The Son can do what? Come on, church. The Son can do what? One more time. The son can do what? Nothing. nothing. What's nothing? Nothing. The original word means nothing of importance. That's what it means here. Nothing of importance. Christ could lace his sandals. He could put on his clothes when he gets up in the morning. He could eat breakfast. But he can do nothing of importance on his own. Christ recognized his limitations. He knew that he could not just do anything that he wanted, anytime to anyone on his own, independently and apart from God. That's how Jesus operated. The son can do nothing on his own accord, but, notice what it says, but only what he sees the father doing. I don't do anything on my own, by myself, in and of myself, I only do what I see the Father doing. He walked through the streets of Jerusalem and the highways and byways of Israel, attentive that God was working, knowing that he was in working in every circumstance, every situation, every encounter, every conversation, everything that he was involved in. And he was attentive to that. He was available to that. And when he stepped into that, he saw God is working here, and I'm going to step into what God is doing, not what, what I want to do. He saw God working, and he joined God in what God was doing. Notice the next sentence. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. I don't know about you, but I have a problem with the word whatever. I'll be honest. I do. Well, how do you say that? Because God can do whatever He wants, whatever He wants, to everyone, without my permission, without my understanding, and without my input. Can He not with you? You and I don't sit in the boardroom. We don't have a, a meeting with God and pray the will of God if it goes against the will of God. How many of our prayers are telling God how He needs to resolve the solution and help us? escape the, the, the circumstance rather than say Lord are you working in and amidst this circumstance or this situation you see that God can do whatever he wants whenever he wants whoever he wants whenever he wants at any time now that works two ways God can do whatever meaning he can do any miracle any miraculous thing any blessing any abundance that he wants he can bring that into your life whenever he wants we're getting a little charismatic now aren't we Uh, I want you to know I'm a little Babticostal. We talked about that this morning down here. A Babticostal is a Pentecostal with sound theology. (laughs) Just want to make that straight. I believe in the Holy Spirit, He can do whatever He wants. There are no limitations to what God can do in your life and through your life, there are none. I mean, here's a man who's been sick for 38 years at a pool of Bethesda for a long time, waiting for the God to stir the water. He can be the first one. He can't get there. Others beat him there. And Jesus walks by, sees him, speaks to him, and he's healed. What an incredible miracle. And I think sometimes we limit God in whatever he can do. I've been Baptist a long time, my whole life. My father was a Baptist pastor. became a Baptist missionary. I was brought up on Baptist milk in the nursery All my life I've been Baptist, and sometimes we as Baptists have a tendency to shortchange whatever God can do and whatever God can bring into our lives and the lives of those that we love, right? On the other end of that, God can do whatever he wants in the hard times, in the moments of discipline. There are times when God has to discipline us because if he doesn't, then we're not his children. There are times when we go through difficult times, hardships, marriage issues, children issues, financial issues, physical issues, and we have a tendency to think, God, if you are God, why are you doing this? And we sometimes fail to realize that even in the difficulty and the hardship, God's still working. He's not stopped. He knew where that man was for 38 years physically, how long he'd been at the pool, and he sent Christ at that moment, at that pool, to speak to that man, and that man received the moment of his miracle. Imagine the other hundreds who were there, who didn't receive their miracle that day. What do you think they thought? It's my turn. Right? But it wasn't their turn. It was this man's turn. There are others who had been healed before him, and I imagine when they got healed, they go, when is it my turn? We had a joke of my family, and this is not in my notes, sometimes I chase rabbits, but uh, we had a, a, our, when, when Matt was little uh, It was his birthday And his younger brother As we were celebrating His birthday He said When is it my birthday? When is it my birthday? He was upset That we weren't celebrating His birthday Instead of his brother's birthday Sometimes we're like that When is it my time? We're celebrating your birthday But when is it going to be my birthday? When am I going to be The center of attraction And attention And get all the presents And have the cake and, and all? When is it my time? It's not going to be time Until it's your time and in the meantime, it doesn't mean that God is not working. He's working. Not like you want, because God can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, in your life and in my life and in his church. But notice what he says, lastly, that the son does what? What's that word? Likewise. Christ emulates the activity of God. He is likewise, in similar fashion, in line with the activity of God. He is abandoned to the activity of God. It's almost as if he is saying here what he's about to pray in the garden here, not very far from now, when he was praying and he knew that the agony of the journey to the cross and the agony of the cross where he would take upon himself the sin of humanity and die in our place. He knew that agony and he prayed in the garden, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He prayed, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And I think there are times where we are more willing, to say, Lord, my will, not your will. And whatever God does, whenever he does it, we should be abandoned to the purposes of God and his activity and say, Lord, whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it, I'm good with it. Not my will, but your will be done. Then lastly, he was assured of the Father's activity. Notice the text in verse 20. Jesus goes on. This is beautiful. He says, for the Father loves the Son. He knew that the Father loved him. That word love here is great affection. God has great affection for me as his son. And, and, and I can trust God and I can be assured that God is actively working in me and through me because he loves me no matter where it takes me, no matter what happens to me, no matter where it leads, I know he loves me. And I think sometimes we are not abandoned to the activity or available to what God is doing and attentive to his activity is because we don't know how much we are truly loved. Because isn't it true when difficulty comes, we question God's love for us? God, if you really loved me, you wouldn't put me through this. You wouldn't allow that. You wouldn't have done that. But he does this out of love. And he allows things to happen out of love. And we can always be assured that the Father loves us, no matter what circumstance or situation or activity that he's in. He says, for the Father loves the Son, and because he loves the Son, notice, he shows him some that he himself is doing. Is that what it says? Does it say some? What does it say? What does it all mean? Everything. He loves me, and he is going to show me all that he is doing. There's not a single thing that God isn't doing that he isn't going to show me what he's doing. Not that sometimes we like to have an immediate ability and insight to see and know what God is doing, but sometimes that insight comes through delay because God is still working in the delay. But at some point, God will show you, he will reveal to you as you connect to him intimately and personally and walk closer and closer and closer to him. You see him, you will recognize him, and you will know what he is doing because God doesn't want us to be unaware of what he's doing. He will give us insight and the ability to, to, to know what God is doing so that we can join God in what he is doing and in, receive what God is doing. Last sentence, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. He's convinced that not only is God going to continue to work, but God's going to work in greater ways than that. You think a guy who's been diseased for 38 years finally walks, you think that's a great activity? You ain't seen nothing yet. And the next verse he talks about the father giving life and the son too is going to give life. Christ is going to raise the dead. Christ is going to die on a cross so that through faith by grace in the Father and the Son we can have forgiveness of sin. There are greater works that Christ still is anticipating and longing to be a part of so that God can work in him and through him. And I talked to churches all over in the last five years from Colorado when I served there to Texas. We think God can't do anything greater than he's already done before. This is a great auditorium. It's beautiful, isn't it? Come on. Isn't this beautiful? It's beautiful. Is this all God's going to do here? Come on. Is this all God's going to do here? Is God going to do greater things than the things that he's done in the past in and through you? Are you sure about that? How do you know that? He loves us. And he will show us. And he will do things that are so great that have not yet to be done. This whole community will marvel. God is not through with his church. And one of these days, if we will be attentive and available and abandoned, we can be assured that greater things are coming so that they may marvel. I want to close with this. I was pastoring my first church in Hasslett, Texas. Anybody know where that is? Hasslett, Texas, north of Fort Worth, small little town. Um, Small church, seminary church. We had 50 when I went. We had about 200 when I left. It was a great little three and a half years. It was my seminary church. They were one of those seminary churches that brought seminary students in, train them up, and then send them out. Anybody know anything like that? They had a parsonage right next door to the church. It was one of those houses when the wind blew, the curtains moved. It's a great parsonage, man. I'm telling you. Well, man, I'm telling you, 45 years ago, that was a, a castle. It was a palace. And uh, not to mention the tarantulas we always found in the yard. But anyway, it was a shotgun house. And uh, you know what that is, where the rooms are on the side, and you can go at the front all the way to the back, and uh, doors on, on either end. And it just happened on that beautiful Texas morning that it snowed several inches. And no one was going to work, but when you live next door to the church in the parsonage, how can you call in and say, I'm not coming to work? <laughs> Makes it a little hard, right? And so not having, you know, the footgear to walk through snow that's several inches, I decided I'd go out the back door, down the back, out the back gate, take a left, go up the little hill and into the educational building through a side door. So I got all my stuff together and you know to get to study because we had two small kids and and it was cold, and the, house, the church was warm, but anyway. And so I, I went out the back door and went through the gate, took a left, came up, opened the door with my key. And before I did, I turned around, and to my, to my surprise, I saw Matthew, our oldest son, about this tall, carefully in his pajamas and in his house shoes, stepping in the same footprints that I had left. I thought about that for a minute before I said anything. And the application, because I am a pastor, instantly went to I am stepping and my son is going to be stepping where I step. I need to be careful how I step, how I live because he's going to follow in my footsteps and I'd be, I, I, I have a responsibility. And that, that flooded me, that reality hit me and I remember that to this day and it's, Uh, 40 years ago. I've never forgotten that. But then I had a second thought. My heavenly father left footprints for me to follow through his son, Jesus Christ. And I am to emulate his life, to follow his example. And I must, as a disciple, step where he steps so that I can be like him and enjoy and experience the fullness of this abundant life that Christ died so that we could have. And I wonder how much we miss along the way because we're not attentive to the Father's activity. We're not aware. Maybe we're aware, but we're not available to what he's doing because he doesn't fit our mold. He's not working exactly the way we think he needs to work because God didn't consult us. We would have told him how to do it differently. And maybe we're not abandoned to the activity that he's involved in because we 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 want our way. We want our agenda. We want our objective. We want our will, not His will. Because of too much hardship, too much responsibility, too much difficulty, and not much control. Let's follow the footprints of Christ. And let's join God in His activity and become more and more like Him, not only as individuals but as a church. Are you attentive to what God is doing? Are you aware of what he is doing? Are you available to what he's doing? Are you abandoned to his activity? If you will, you can be assured, no matter what you think you've experienced, the best is yet to come. God, thank you for the joy and the privilege and the opportunity we've had in this day to be challenged by this passage. And God, I pray that as we enter into this time in your presence, as we sing this song, as we reflect upon what we've heard, Holy Spirit, use what we have heard and apply it to us individually. Because, Lord, we are all in different places in our walk with you. Like the man at the pool of Bethesda, you knew exactly where he was the entire time. You never took your eyes off him. You knew exactly where he was and even though it took so long, you came at the right time in the right way through your son Christ. And Lord, maybe there's someone here today who has yet to place their faith and trust in you. They have not had an encounter with you as personal Savior and Lord of their lives. Lord, I pray that you would pass their way today, that you would see them, that you would call them unto yourself to follow you as a Christ follower, as a disciple, as they place their faith and trust in you. For those of us who have done that, Lord, maybe we're sitting at a pool and lamenting over our condition. We just need to rise up from our condition and celebrate what you've already done, the fullness that that brings and the joy that we can experience through faith in you. Lord, I pray that you would move in us in a mighty way, that you would use us for your glory. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you join us in standing? Our pastors will be up front. If there is a decision you'd like to make today, they'll be glad to pray with you and talk to you about whatever decision God has placed upon your heart. As we stand, as we sing, we invite you to come.